0: This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A3 is software that helps you see things from your customer's point of view so you can make things that are truly fast, powerful, and easy to use. By BlackBot, making the world a better place by providing technology solutions and support to nonprofit organizations around the world. By OptimalSort, with an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run card sorts better than you ever thought possible. By PowerMapper, mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By Axure, enabling information architects and user experience professionals to design efficiently, experience their designs, and clearly communicate them, ensuring more useful and usable application. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Artist and information architect Elliot Malkin discusses his new media projects installed in public space. He covers several projects in this presentation, including Yeruv, a symbolic boundary erected around Jewish neighborhoods as part of the observation of the Sabbath completed in lower Manhattan and New York City. Elliot also talks about the research into the life of his great-grandfather, which led to his concept for Cemetery 2.0 an electronic device that connects gravestones to online genealogical databases. Elliot also shares his most recent work called Graffiti for Butterflies, a technique for using ultraviolet light and street art to direct monarch butterflies to food sources in urban areas. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast.
1: Cheers. Um, I'm Elliot Malkin. I'm just going to dive right into my projects that deal with information in physical space. Uh, I'll explain the butterfly later if I have time. Okay, so does anyone know what this is? Okay, it's a sky, it's a streetlight, it's a utility pole, yes. Uh, I'm talking about the wire that goes across the middle of the screen. That's not an electrical wire. It has nothing to do with utility companies. Nope. What? In a roof, somebody got it. It's in a roof. So that wire is called an eruv, E-R-U-V. It's a Hebrew word. An eruv is a wire that's suspended in the air around an Orthodox Jewish community. It can be miles and miles in length. It exists today in hundreds of Jewish communities around the world. It's built as part of the ancient customs dealing with the observation of the Sabbath, the weekly day of rest dictated in the Bible. So what is this wire have to do with the Sabbath. So in order to understand this wire, the Aruv, we must talk briefly about the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, every Saturday, work is prohibited. You can't work. It's the day of rest. But what exactly is work? How do you define work? Well, a strict definition of work includes very simply carrying objects very that's the strict definition on the sabbath you can't carry things not even your house keys so that's really restrictive are you saying that you can't even carry your food to the dinner table on the sabbath is it that restrictive well you can because the rules to be more specific is that you can carry in private space in your home but you can't carry in public space so nevertheless, it's still fairly restrictive. But from the standpoint of public space, what if you want to walk to the synagogue and carry your keys or push a baby carriage outside on the Sabbath? Well, this is where the eruv com- comes in, that wire that's suspended in the air around Orthodox Jewish communities. As I said, the eruv the is a wire that is suspended in the air. It's constructed in public space, in cities and suburbs around the world, from public utility poles, for example. But the area, this is the key here, the area inside of an eruv is considered the shared private space of the Jewish community. So it's no longer public space. The area inside of it becomes shared private space. So the eruv transforms public space into private space in the minds of those who recognize it. The actual physical space inside the eruv has not changed, but the mental models operating in that space have changed. So what this allows is it allows observant Jews to carry objects outside of their homes on the Sabbath. If they live inside of an eruv, they can carry objects outside of their homes on the Sabbath. This conceptual designation of space for religious purposes is expressed today on the streets of cities and suburbs around the world. There are hundreds of A roofs around the globe. As you can see, it's not a barrier of any sort. It doesn't get in the way. It's merely a boundary, simply a designation of space. In fact, it's a designation of space only for those who know it's there. Its presence is barely noticeable from the street. You would probably just walk right under it without knowing it was even there. I don't know if you can see it in this photo, but sort of over on the left-hand side, you can see a wire up behind the signs. All of these photos I've shown you of this Aruv are from um, an Aruv on the upper west side of Manhattan at about Amsterdam and 180th Street on the upper west side, way upper west. Now, here's a map of that Aruv I was showing you. It encircles the neighborhood surrounding Yeshiva University. This is a fairly small Eruv. The map shows the placement of every pole and every wire that comprises the Eruv. It includes the entire campus, but also the small neighborhood around the campus. And this neighborhood is a mixed residential Jewish and Dominican neighborhood. Here's another view of the neighborhood inside that same Eruv, around 190th. Now, bringing it closer to home, there's an Aruv up here in Skokie, uh, just north of the city. Um, And this is the map of that Aruv. This, you can see, is a bit bigger. This is a number of miles in length. And here's another much larger Aruv in Manhattan. You can see that it encloses all of Central Park there in central Manhattan. The notes on the right of this map are for the the reference of the members of the community. It dictates precisely where the A-Roof runs on a sidewalk-by-sidewalk basis. Uh, The boundary is very precise. Adherents do do not want to commit sin by carrying outside of the A-Roof. So they they need to know exactly where the A-Roof runs on a really specific basis. Okay, so that's A-Roof 101. Now I get into my design um, work. So any questions about the A-Roof? Yeah, the Aruv dates back to biblical times. Yeah. Okay, feel free to interrupt me at any time. Is there another question? Right. So these, the Aruv is built um, around communities where Orthodox Jews live, but those are not exclusively Jewish neighborhoods. The neighborhood in the Upper West Side I was talking to you about is Dominican and Jewish. It's these the the a roof can go around heterogeneous and they do go around heterogeneous areas, right? As I said, it's not a barrier. It's truly really, it's it's a symbolic boundary for the members of the community to observe. Yes. Um the the jewish laws surrounding the construction of an eruv are very lengthy and complicated and they go there um it's all documented in the talmud and you actually need an expert to interpret those architectural laws and translate them into a modern day a but there is a relationship there between the jewish community and the municipality and um, the Jewish community asked for permission from the, the municipality. And so there's always some kind of, you know, negotiation relationship. And, and oftentimes, historically, if you do a you know, Google search or a LexisNexis search on the A roof, you will find municipal disputes. There was one in Palo Alto, California. There was a major municipal dispute in London, uh, in England, about the construction of A roof. Some residents of these heterogeneous communities do not want it up. Okay, so in any case, a number of years ago, I became really interested in the Aruv, as you can see, and just to reflect for a moment, here's why I'm interested in the Aruv. It is perhaps the truest psychogeographic phenomena I've ever come across. By psychogeographic, I mean it's something that deals with people's mental models of space. It's a physical device, but the true power of the Aruv is conceptual in the way that it converts. Public space into something that's considered shared private space. And as I discussed, it's a melding of both the public and the private domains. It's a private religious expression in the public secular arena. So it has both religious and secular components. Along these lines, it's both ancient and modern. It stems from ancient biblical practice, but is eminently modern as it appropriates contemporary architectural forms. And lastly, from a social standpoint, it's entirely, the observation of the Aruv is entirely elective on behalf of its observers and members. Um, but it's enforced in the, in the sense that, in the same way that any observation of religious practice is enforced through the kinds of social pressures that it might exist within any uh, religious community. So that's why I was interested in the Aruv. And I began to do some research. Um, among other things, I learned that I was living inside the boundaries of an Aruv that once existed on the Lower East Side of Manhattan many years ago. It wasn't there anymore. I lived kind of up on the top left of there. The amazing thing about this Aruv, this historical Aruv, is that it had no wires. The entire western boundary of the Aruv was formed by the tracks of the old Third Avenue elevated train line in New York City. The train line has since been dismantled. It was dismantled in 1955, which put an end to the Aruv, but it was, that Aruv was around for about a half century before, that, before it was dismantled. So in this case, it was not necessary to build a wire to, to make this a roof, it was far more conceptual than that. In this case, it was almost entirely conceptual. There was not even a pretense towards construction, it was purely about the designation of existing space. The rabbi of this community deemed the train line the boundary of a an roof, and so it was. The mental models of the congregation then shifted. Now, here's an aerial view of Manhattan flipped on its side. South is to the left. And then here is the pathway of the former 3rd Avenue elevated train line. It bisects the island of Manhattan from north to to south, or east to west into, no, from north to south. Sorry, I'm getting mixed up on my own flipping here. Um, The part of Manhattan inside of the Aruv was below the train line to the east. And again, this Aruv had no wires. On the west was the train line and all the other boundaries to the east were formed by the East River. So this Aruv was formed by an elevated train line on the west and a natural boundary, the river, on all other sides, mainly the east. And then here's where my design work finally comes into play. I decided to reconstruct this Aruv and I didn't do it by reconstructing a dismantled train line. I did this by putting semicodes along the former pathway of the Third Avenue elevated train land on the streets of Manhattan. And I focused them around the Lower East Side, where the Orthodox Jewish community lived at the time. Here is, so what is a semicode? Here's a photo of one of the semicodes I put on the street as part of this project. A semicode is essentially a way of encoding information. In this case, it encodes, it's a visual way of encoding a URL. So a camera phone can read the semicode and open the relevant. URL encoded in the semicode. So the way that um, my project worked is that each semicode would link to a photo of the part of the Third Avenue Elevated Train Line that once existed at that specific location on the street. Here you can see uh, a train line that goes past Cooper Union Building at about Third Avenue and Seventh Street. That building is still fairly par- uh, prominent landmark in Lower Manhattan. So, this is how I essentially mapped the train line back onto the city. Here is a semicode I placed on the street near Bowery Savings Bank on the Bowery, uh, which is what Third Avenue turns into in Lower Manhattan, which you can see in the background there. That building is Bowery Savings Bank. And then there's the semicode on the street right near it. If you use your camera phone to open the URL related to that um, semicode, you would get this photo. And that's a photo from that exact location where the train line used to run past. You can see the Bowery Savings Bank adjacent to it, and then the train line that used to run in front of it. And here's another semicode along Third Avenue. And then here's another semicode placed directly onto the subway entrance, the system that replaced the elevated train system. And then here's another semicode near a building that looks like a semicode. <laughs> I wonder what URL that building encodes. Um, and then here's a semicode in front of the Trans World Buddhist Association where the train line cut through Chinatown. So, this project was an electronic reconstruction of an Aruv mapped back onto the city 50 years after its demise. It's an Aruv constructed almost purely out of information, not too unlike a rabbi who constructs an Aruv out of an idea about urban space. So, from all this, you can imagine a purely electronic roove, one without wires, the boundaries of which are engaged by, let's say, your cell phone. So, you're about to carry an object outside of the space, and your cell phone vibrates and gives you an alert. Or um, the ubiquitous computing example would be, you're about to push a baby carriage outside of the roove and the brakes lock up, so you can't actually go outside the roove. Now I almost said virtual a roof before, when I mentioned electronic roof instead of electronic roof, because, in a sense, all a roofs are virtual. They don't really exist outside of the minds of those who believe in them. So I continued to think about a roof technology, which is which is just a wire and a pole, and this leads to my second project dealing with a roofs. I should say that. The Third Avenue A roof is very unusual. The great majority of A roofs are, you know, simply still reliant on a, a pole and wire system. But how could this system be improved? What would be the next generation A-Roof? I approached this as a design question. So, like any designer, I I looked at it from a behavioral standpoint, um, as hopefully a good ethnographer would. So, one thing I didn't mention about the pole and wire system is that every Thursday, the Aruv is inspected by a member of the local community Aruv uh, committee. And they drive around and they make sure that the Aruv is intact and suitable for carrying on the Sabbath. If there's a breach in the Aruv, if one of those wires is cut, then the Aruv is invalid and you can't carry on the Sabbath. Um, So going around and inspecting the Aruv every Thursday is a fairly labor-intensive process. So here's an email from a community listserv in Park Slope, Brooklyn. The subject line reads, the A-ROOF is down. This is a weekly email about the integrity of the A-ROOF, broadcast to the community. Almost every A-ROOF community has some kind of broadcasting mechanism uh, for this specific purpose. But my question was, why not have a more intelligent Aruv? So when there's a breach in the ARUV, the community is automatically notified and the ARUV committee knows exactly where they need to fix it. They don't have to drive around inspecting it and and send out and then uh, identify exactly where the breach is uh, located. So here's my solution. Instead of a wire, you have a laser beam. The laser is shot from one pole to the next and picked up by a camera on the second pole. So the laser is a transmitter on the right and the camera is a receiver on the left. This is what it looks like when you shoot a low power laser into the lens of a camera. This is the image that your camera will make, okay? It's just a laser shoots a burst of light and your camera can pick it up. If it's a low power laser, it will not blow out your camera. It will just produce a lot of light in the lens of your camera. So I call this a laser bloom. And actually, Dave Gray, who was pointing around with his uh, laser pointer today during his talk, and that's, this is the power of laser that you can shoot into a camera to produce a laser beam like that. Um, if you hook up a video monitor to the video camera that's being sh- where the, which the laser is shooting into, you can then get a video signal. Um, and there you can see it's, it's totally red, or almost totally red. So then video processing software can monitor that signal for you. And then you don't have to sit there and constantly watch it. If that red light goes off, then it can just send you an email, or send you a text message. Red light's gone off, the Aruv is down. No carrying. So, so here's a video capture from the um, actual Aruv, laser Aruv system I built in New York. Um, you can see there's a laser across the street shooting into this camera on the other side of the street. It's being shot from, from a further distance from than the image I just showed you of the other laser bloom. So you can see that the bloom takes up one portion of the photo, but you can still see like the rest, what's going on in the, re- in the rest of the street. And then to, to describe the technology behind this laser a this is an interior view of the laser. It's being shot from inside the window... I didn't use poles. I just attached the laser. I found a contraption at the hardware store, attached that little laser pointing device into the center of it and put it on the center of the window. And this device I found at the hardware store allows you to aim the laser in a really precise fashion. So precise that I was able to aim the beam directly into the lens, a tiny lens of a camera that was hanging from a building across the street. So I epoxyed the laser into this contraption and it had, to be, it had to be really precise to get a direct hit. This is what it looks like from outside on the street. Okay, so that's the laser. That's one part of this laser A roof system. What about the other side? Well, I've, I came up with these, I found these cheap wireless video or surveillance or sur- security cameras, um, which you can find you know, at any electronic store. And this one's a wireless video camera. And so they broadcast the video signal without wires, which is great. That way you can like hang it from from buildings fairly easily. Uh, All you need is a wire for power. I encased the camera in silicon here to make sure that they were weatherproof. And then here are the four main components of this um, outdoor surveillance camera that I constructed. You have the lens the antenna to send the video signal out, um, a really strong magnet, so I could hang the camera from the outside of metal surfaces on the exterior of buildings, and then the power cable. Now the power cable, power is the main challenge here, right? If you're gonna hang something from a building, how do I get enough power into it for weeks at a time so that I don't have to keep recharging it? Well, I didn't quite figure that out and Oh, that's a, uh, did you see that? I, I missed it, but that was a um, demonstration of how easily the magnet is to use to hang this camera on the sides of buildings. So here's the power problem. I actually had to use a small car battery to attach to this camera, but that didn't stop me from climbing up from to the second story of this building and putting this uh, device onto, the, uh, onto this building across the street. I was hoping it would be a lot smaller, but that's how it goes. That was two weeks of power right there for this, uh, for this camera, but it was weatherproof, and it was wireless in the sense that it was sending me video signals back into, the, um, into this art gallery across the street. So once I put it up there, I left it alone for two weeks. I didn't have to touch it. Now here's a screenshot from the, um, the resulting video signal. Now. This was when I was calibrating it, and I didn't get the aim quite right. So you can see the laser bloom is really small. But here's the previous video still I showed you, where I did get the aim right. And then this is a view from inside the gallery. I sent the content of these two video signals into the gallery for a companion installation. So it was in the street, on the surface of buildings, and then was also, the video was uh, um, broadcast into the gallery space. And then here's a video highlight, a video capture of an actual uh, footage. That's Time Warner Cable right there. Now on a total side note, I found that when I messed with the tuning of the wireless video cameras, when I shot a laser into it, I produced these random psychedelic images. And then I created a whole series of these prints as a byproduct of this project. So that was just like a little interesting discovery that just accidentally happened um, as part of doing this work. Now onto a totally separate project. the end of my Aruv projects. Any questions about the uh, Aruv stuff?
0: hmm That's a
1: good question. Um, so I what I did was I I painted some. I mean, the main innovation was, there was that it had. A, um, a an auto-broadcast system built into it so that it would tell you if, like, the, the ARUV was down. But then you point out that you might lose the visual quality of it so that people will know where, where the boundary is. So what I did is I just put a little bit of graffiti or a, a little bit of, a, like, uh, indicator on the street where it was. So, yes, it did still require that. I did that project in 2005. Oh, really? Oh, really? Okay, because I checked like a month later and most of them had been totally disintegrated by, by weather. But Yeah. It, when I did the Semicode project in 2005, um, it wasn't a really widely adopted platform yet. Um nowadays you're seeing an increasing usage and acceptance of semicode in camera phones. Back then, I think about 10 people probably consumed my project in total. It just, you know, I put it up on the internet and just got the idea out there, but that's okay. I mean, I didn't even have a camera phone that could read semicode at the time. But I think you could download a semicode reader app for your uh, iPhone and any other like top of the line phones right now. Yes. You know, yeah, two questions there. One, um, did I get any reaction or feedback from uh, the Orthodox, Jew- Orthodox Jewish community? And two, did I consider monetizing this and turning this into an actual product? First question is I worked with, um, I started doing this right at the end of my graduate school program at New York University, and I became friends with and worked with uh, Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. Who was a rabbi at NYU, and I, he was really excited about this, and he helped me read some old Hebrew texts that gave me some guidance as to I, I don't I can't read Hebrew, but um, he was able to translate some things for me and was extremely supported and super excited about this. Um, as far as monetizing this, you know I did it as uh, an experimental um, art project. I'm not really interested in turning in doing the kind of engineering. Uh, that would and production that would be required to create this into an actual product. I put the idea out there. It's open source. Go crazy with it. Any other questions on the Aruv stuff before I go into the next project? I've got about 15 or 20 minutes, so I might have to zip through two remaining projects. Um, totally unrelated now. Switching topics. Not the Aruv. Um, switching over to a Jewish gravestone here. Um, this is a project called Cemetery 2.0. Um, Cemetery 2.0 is developed as an enhancement to my great grandfather's gravestone. These are my great grandparents, Rose and Hyman Victor. They're buried out west of Chicago here in Waldheim Cemetery. And um, one time I was to- touring Jewish Waldheim Cemetery with my father, who's in the audience. Um, and he was giving me a tour of these gravestones and of our, our relatives that are buried in the cemetery. There's many. But I was really struck by this photo of Hyman Victor on his gra- gravestone. I thought to myself, I'm just three generations removed from this guy, and yet I absolutely know nothing about him beyond this gravestone and this gravestone photo. So I decided to go on a quest to learn everything I possibly could about this man my great-grandfather, Hyman Victor. So I started with the grave itself. What could I surmise about Hyman Victor from the physical record? Well, there's DNA down there, but that's not the kind of excavation I was interested in. So we're back to square one, the photo and the information on his gravestone. So we're information architects. The, the information design problem on your average gravestone is that they have your, they only typically have date of birth, the deceased name, their age, and their date of death, and whether they were a mother or a father. It's a very limited amount of information. It's very hard to figure out something about someone's life by visiting their gravestone. Now, it's certainly a beautiful memorial, but the cemetery is largely a place of mystery as there's not much information there on the grave. So this can be approached as an information design question. And many memorial designers actually try to tackle this problem. So the physical record is very scarce. What about oral history and memory? Of Hymen's survivors, my father was in the best position to convey information about his grandfather. My dad was able to tell me about his personality and provided a handful of anecdotes, but Hyman died almost 50 years ago, and human memory is unreliable. So I turned to the other physical record, government archives, stored primarily on microfilm, much of which has been digitized and, and, and therefore now comprises part of the digital record. So with Hyman's name and date of birth, which I had from his gravestone, I was able to get his death certificate from here from the Cook County Clerk's Office uh, near here downtown. And then from this document, I was able to uncover 13 other documents about his life. And I found these in libraries, online, and in government archives. Um, You can see here one of the things I found interesting right on the bottom, he died of carcinoma of the stomach with metastasis, which I asked a doctor friend of mine, he said that is a disease that um, is associated with Eastern, old Eastern Europe eating a lot of pickled herring. You don't see that uh, much anymore. Um, this is the 1954 phone book uh, listing Hyman's business, Victor Liquors on the south side of Chicago. First line there, Victor Wine and Liquor Store. I, went, I drove over there a couple years ago on the south side. It's now a gravel parking lot. Here's his World War I draft registration card. And then it gets good. His 1916 Declaration of Intent for American Citizenship, which leads to all kind of information about where he came from in Russia. So here's the bottom half of that document. This is interesting. I'm going to walk out here and read this out loud. Testing. Okay. I arrived. All right. It is my bona fide intent, starting at the third line, It is my bona fide intention to renounce forever all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, sovereignty, and particularly to, and this is a stamp, Nicholas II Emperor of all the Russias, of whom I am now a subject. I arrive at the Port of New York, in the state of New York, on or about the 20th day of June, Anno Domini 1913. I am not an anarchist, I am not a polygamist, (laughs) nor a believer in the practice of polygamy, and it is my intention in good faith to become a citizen of the United States of America and to permanently reside therein, so help me God. Now, this emperor, Nicholas II, emperor of all the Russias, you can imagine a whole set of stamps of, like, all the leading dictators of the time that this clerk is, like, going through. Um, This emperor was really terrible to the Jews. So I doubt there was any problem with his allegiance. Nevertheless, he signed the form. If you read up on this stuff, this gets the historical context. You gotta get the documents, but then if you really wanna know about the context, the political context, the social context, the cultural context, you you gotta go look it up. You gotta find out who these people are, Nicholas II, emperor of all the Russias. So I I did this for about a year and I compiled everything onto this website. I created this website called Everything I Know About Hyman Victor. And there you can see all the vital records, all those documents that I uncovered, all which all stemmed from or, that day at his gravestone. Starting And the documents run from 1913 to 1961. I list my sources. You could go on there, and you could probably find out some information about your ancestors. It's all out there. But my question was, why not have this information available to people who visit his grave? Why should the cemetery be such a place of mystery? What sort of systems are in place that would allow me to do that? Well, here's one system. This is the Granite Record Mountain Vault. It's a nuclear bomb-proof vault outside Salt Lake City in Utah. This is where the Mormon Church stores its genealogical records, the largest... Database, largest library of genealogical records in the world. The church does amazing work. It's the largest collection and any genealogical researcher is going to visit the church archives either in person or online if you're gonna do research. I visited online and I found a number of documents. The church is so serious about genealogy that they invented a data format called GEDCOM, G-E-D-C-O-M. They invented it in the 1980s. It's designed to standardize the storage of genealogical information. GEDCOM is a sort of precursor to XML, and it's still used today. In fact, it is the worldwide standard still for genealogical information. So what you see is the GEDCOM file here, just the top of it, just the head of the file that I put together for my great-grandfather, Hyman Victor. Researchers and amateur genealogists make and share these files, upload them to various websites. It's sort of like this file structure, this file format, is sort of like the basic format for a social software for the living and the dead. So I uploaded this GEDCOM file that I made to a couple of sites. I uploaded it to jewishgen.org and here's a visualization of that GEDCOM file at jewishgen.org. It's a part of the website called the Family Tree of the Jewish People. So what it does is it Uploads your Jedcom file and then it looks for connections to other people's Jedcom files through the relative section of the file. Now this is that same Jedcom file but uploaded to a different site. This is FamilySearch.org, which is the uh, website run by the Mormon Church, and so this is a public view of the comp- of their comprehensive authoritative database. So my thought was, why not connect this information with the person's gravestone. Make it a live connection so that if I as a researcher discover new information about the deceased person I am researching, I can upload it to the database through the website, the public publicly accessible website, and I can then that will be automatically reflected at the actual gravestone. So, I created a prototype mock up illustration of this device that I would like to see become cemetery 2.0 so that would be like a wireless internet connection device with an electronic screen with all the person's essentially all of their metadata or the information so it would include their like you know their relatives you know if they immigrated where did they immigrate from all that all that stuff in the documents that I showed you so, that people could go to cemeteries and actually learn about the people who are buried there. Um, do I have, how much time? How am I doing? Okay, I have five minutes, so I'm just gonna breeze through my most recent project very quickly. Um, this is the logo on my website, ziga.com, and um, it actually comes from, this is totally unrelated to my other work, by the way, so major uh, non sequitur here. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, I did a science fair project on butterflies, and I made these sketches of the fluorescent patterns in butterfly wings. Somebody, some teacher turned me on to this. It, I didn't come up with it. And, uh, you know, I was pretty interested in the project, but then my interest in butterflies lay dormant for 20 years until I started to learn about monarch butterflies, which are pretty amazing. Every year, monarch butterflies go on a massive migration through North America, they go as far north as Canada in the summers, and then down to their wintering site in Mexico in the winters. They all converge. Millions of monarch butterflies converge to this one point in Mexico up in the forest there, and then they, they spend their winters there, and then they spread out across North America in the summers. In the summer, they can fly as far north as the milkweed will grow, which is you know the southern part of Canada, because milkweed is their primary, primary food source. On their way back south, they fly over massive swathes of land, densely populated by humans. On this map here, um, pop- human population density is represented as yellow to red. So red are the most densely populated areas of North America, and yellow are fairly w- uh, densely populated areas of North America. So the butterfly migration is happening on top of where we live as humans, our habitat. Now, this is the milkweed plant, the the most important plant for the monarch butterfly. The butterflies, the adult butterflies, drink from these flowers, and they lay their eggs on these plants. The caterpillars that emerge from the eggs eat the leaves of the plant. They only eat this plant. They eat no other plant. This is the monarch butterfly caterpillar's exclusive food source. The fate of the monarch butterfly is tied directly to the fate of this plant. If there is no plant, the monarchs have no place to live. They die and that's the end of monarch butterflies. So there's some great programs out there. This is one of the uh, most well-known, the Monarch Waystation Project. And what this does is it promotes um, habitat creation across North America by planting milkweeds throughout the country. And if you contact them, they'll give you uh, milkweed seeds. You could grow milkweed. And you'll likely see a lot of butterflies coming to your butterfly garden. There's a lot of habitat destruction that's been going on. So what I decided to do is in my apartment here in New York or there in New York City, um, you do actually occasionally see some monarch butterflies flying through New York City you basically can see them all over North America and I've seen them in Central Park I've seen I saw one I saw a monarch butterfly walking down the street in Brooklyn the other day um, they're heading south now and they should be out of here by now um, so I decided to grow some milk milkweed on my balcony my own little way station if you will my one question was or the problem I had was you know would a monarch ever find it so I started reading about butterflies and monarch butterflies, and the thing about butterflies is that they have enhanced vision. They can see visible light, the light that we can see, but they can also see ultraviolet light, light we can't see, the light that burns us and gives us cancer, they can see that light. So they have a broader spectrum of vision than humans do. So this enhanced vision is what helps butterflies locate the milkweed flower, the plant that they need to drink from and lay their eggs. The milkweed flower has a pronounced pattern in, in, under, in ultraviolet light. So they can see something on those flyer, flowers that we can't see. So I took their target. I was concerned about the butterflies f- finding my milkweeds. So I took their target flower, what they're really going after, and I put it on the wall, you know, as an illustration really big behind it. And that really, you know, wasn't doing much. And then I thought about it more, and I realized that my illustration does not have any ultraviolet properties. I can draw a milkweed milkweed flower, print out a picture-perfect photograph of that flower, but it's not made out of flour. It's not gonna have the ultraviolet properties. So I thought about this and I thought, how can I give this essentially butterfly graffiti some ultraviolet qualities? So I found, that, found the solution. The solution is sunblock. I I created some ultraviolet graffiti out of um, sunblock spray paint, which we normally use to spray on our skin to reflect ultraviolet light. I appropriated this, uh, the properties of sunblock for um, ultraviolet uh, spray paint. You can buy this at any drugstore. And here is a video of the end product. And that's all I have time for today. You can see more of my work at Ziga.com. Thanks. Um, <laughs> any questions? What is Ziga? Well, I, um, you know, when I bought a domain name in like, uh, I think it was 2000, I was just like trying to come up with a name. I wanted something that sounded cool, that was short. And I had just bought a DVD by uh, Ziga Vertov, a Russian filmmaker from like the 20s, man with a movie camera. And uh, I just saw his first name and I, I took that and I used it. So it doesn't mean anything. It's just a word. I had a visitor whether whether it was attracted to my butterfly graffiti or the plant itself we'll never know but uh you know again that's open source go crazy with the uh, butterfly graffiti i think that's a really good design problem i mean you know Um, one of the, one Jewish custom is when you visit, uh, one of your relatives or ancestors at at a cemetery, in a Jewish cemetery, you just go look around, you find a rock or a stone or a stick, and you just place it there right on the stone just to indicate that you were there, right? Just to recognize that you visited. Uh, it's just a very simple gesture, but it's a, you know, it's a pretty strong tradition. And, um... I think you raised the question of you know, how that could then play into this design problem. And I think it's a related issue is how that would be the question, the design problem there would be, how do you live, leave traces behind, right? Or a permanent trace of your visitation. Um, and I think that could be potentially incorporated into the device. So in other words, what you're saying is the device needs an input too, like, leave your signature, like a guest book. Um, any other questions? All the way in the back. I think that's really smart. I think you just got, you have Cemetery 3.0. <laughs> I encourage you to publish that. Um, basically, what he said was why put a device on every gravestone, that would be kind of hardware intensive, and it's probably not realistic. Why not geotag every gravestone and then allow people to just plug that information into their cell phones? And I said that's Cemetery 3.0 right there. Any other questions? Okay, thank you.